Hello, and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. The purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and forces that have shaped leaders in higher education and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. It's a very special honor to host um, Dr. Marjorie Haas. We're so pleased that she can join us, and especially so during this month where we celebrate women's history. Indeed, she herself has been a history maker in many different settings. Marjorie is the president of the Council of Independent Colleges. Before coming to CIC in 2021, she spent 12 years in two presidencies, first at Austin College and more recently at Rhodes College, after having served as a member of the faculty and as a provost at Muhlenberg College. That's where we first had the opportunity to meet, Marjorie. Wow. I remember it well, Jay. I do too. Marjorie was not new to CIC as she had served as a member of the board of directors, and she's been very active in leadership of other higher ed associations, serving as a board member of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, and was also former chair of the board of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. Marjorie holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of Illinois and was um, and is published on philosophy of language, log logic, and feminism. Um, more recently, um, she has had a focus on writing about women in leadership and published a book um, called A Leadership Guide for Women in Higher Education in 2021. Marjorie, it's an honor and a special joy to welcome you to um, Leaders on Leadership. Thank you so much, Jay. I've listened to other episodes of your podcast and uh, have been really inspired by what the leaders you've interviewed have had to say. So I'm excited to be among them now. Thank you. Um, well, it's really meant to be conversational. It's really meant to try and provide an opportunity to do something that I don't know that we do very often or very well. And that is to, to ask leaders to share of themselves some reflections about your own pathways into leadership with a hope that your story will connect and inspire others, which I know it will. So I'd love it, Marjorie, if you'd share a little bit of, uh, of your own story with our listeners and talk about some of the people, places, or events that helped to forge you to become the leader and the person that you are as your journey in higher education unfolded. It's such an inspiring and exciting prompt because it I, I think the way you ask it really hits at something very important, which is the the difference between sort of the plot and the story of how we arrive at these leadership roles. So my plot is probably very similar to many other college presidents or leaders in higher education. I fell in love with a discipline, in my case, philosophy. I never imagined I would leave that discipline. My goal was uh, to become a professor, a tenured professor. I achieved that goal. Um, and the leadership pieces came a little bit later. They came originally because I was active as a faculty member and began to be asked to take on faculty leadership roles, to chair important committees or to lead task forces, to make presentations on behalf of Muhlenberg College. And I, as I often say, if you 
develop a reputation as a faculty member for being able to get things accomplished without leaving dead bodies in your wake, you will be asked to join uh, the administrative team at some point. And so I had an opportunity to direct a center at Muhlenberg College, the Center for Ethics, and found that I enjoyed that kind of working across the curriculum, working across the campus, working with both faculty members and administrators, was then asked to serve in an interim role as the chief academic officer at Muhlenberg, an institution that I had loved. I was assured it would be just for a year. And uh, that then was uh, turned out to be a, a big fat lie. I was asked to apply for the position permanently, went through a search process and became Muhlenberg's provost. And then that of course put me in a position to be invited into presidencies and eventually into the CIC presidency. So that's sort of the basic plot. But as we all know, that plot can cover a variety of different stories. And for me, really it was, I think a story of um, finding increasing uh, ways of increasingly being of use, increasingly being able to um, give of myself to my institutions. As a faculty member, I could do that in a very particular way. And I found that these other opportunities allowed me to explore parts of myself, myself and parts of the institution that had uh, been uh, dormant. Uh, you know, when you go to become a philosophy professor, you put a lot of other things aside. And some of the things that mattered most to me, uh, my um, religious traditions, my ability to create community, my interest in um, helping uh, structures become stronger, all of those things had sort of lain to the side and taking on leadership roles were ways that I could bring more of myself into my work and ultimately into services in the institutions. That's part of why there's joy in this kind of work. It's also part of why this work is very difficult because it is more than just a few facts in your head or a way of writing for professionals in your discipline. It really becomes a much more comprehensive kind of relatedness to the people in the institutions where you work. Thank you. I can't, I can't help. As, as someone who was also an undergraduate philosophy major, how did you find your way to philosophy and how does philosophy continue to shape kind of your lens, your view of the world? You know, we fall in love with our disciplines, right? It's very much a romance. And for many of us, that happens as an undergraduate, it did for me. I remember going to college as a first year student at the University of Illinois and looking through the course catalog and circling all the courses that I thought I would wanna take and calling my mother and saying, mom, there's so many classes I wanna take here. They're all in the philosophy department. And I was very fortunate that my mother said, well, then maybe you'll be a philosophy major. I didn't know this was something I was passionately interested. I knew I loved literature. I knew I loved, uh, I was interested in thinking perhaps about pursuing a, a career in foreign relations or international relations. I had, as I said, was an avid reader always. Uh, so it was, it was really kind of discovering that as an undergraduate by simply following my passions and my interests. Having the support of my parents for something as unconventional as being a philosophy major was very, was very fortunate. Huge. Some of that I learned in retrospect or came to realize in retrospect was it's possible that they 
they didn't think it mattered all that much what a girl majored in because I think they assumed that I would have a husband who would you know support me or be the major breadwinner so that might have been some of it but nonetheless they were supportive of my pursuing that discipline and uh it 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 really was a love affair I remember the excitement uh with which I attended my classes the energy I had for the things that I was learning as an undergraduate and the notion that I could continue in graduate school and continue to pursue and think about these things was just wildly exciting for me at the time. That's wonderful. Well, as we sit here in the midst of Women's History Month, I appreciate your willingness to share some of your own story and your desire and commitment through your most recent book to trying to lift other women up. And yeah, I'd love for you to share two or three pieces of advice, perhaps, that are really aimed at women um, who are seeking to be leaders in higher education. I, I discovered when I stepped into these roles how important it was to uh, mentor, support, and advise other emerging leaders. And women naturally gravitated towards me and asked advice, women that I knew and eventually women that I didn't know. And I began to lead some very informal seminars for women across the country who were emerging leaders. And the book really grew out of that. A few of the things that I really came to see, they were true for me in my leadership path and I think are true for a, a lot of leaders, but particularly for women leaders, uh, that that really became kind of central to the book, some of those things. So the first thing I would say is that for many of us, these leadership roles require a real shift in our own sense of professional identity. Mm. And it's important, I think, and I, I advise women and others as well, um, to, to take some time to recognize that taking on significant leadership roles, particularly for the first time, not only means adopting to a new role, but it means saying goodbye to a previous role. And you have to leave yourself time to mourn that. I Leaving the classroom was difficult for me in, in many ways. And I still have found ways yeah. to teach, you know, throughout this, the, the last parts of my career. But there is something very pleasurable about being part of a faculty, about being, uh, having your primary focus on your research and your teaching, about being in relationship with students that you have to say uh, farewell to. And taking time to acknowledge that, to mourn that, to think about what it is you're giving up so that you can take on what you're taking on sort of in a, with freshness and with open eyes, I think is really important. Uh, for women, that often is about the community that you leave. You know, when you're a faculty member, you have a whole community. Um, and that's true, not just for faculty who go on to these leadership roles, but if you are a, you know, doing student life work and you're in direct contact with the community you have with the students or, you know, and you coach a team as opposed mm -hmm. to becoming the athletic director, you move from this sort of notion of being immersed in a group to uh, sort of doing work that's a, a little bit more independent. You don't have the, the same kind of uh, supportive peer group as you did. And that can be challenging, particularly for women. So I think thinking about the professional identity shifts, the second thing I would say is that this work requires that you become very comfortable managing issues related to power, to conflict, and to difficult emotions. 
And all of those are things that women are often socialized to not deal well with, uh, to be accommodating rather than to engage in conflict or to be passive aggressive rather than to be open to overt conflict, to think of power as something that is um, in the hands of others rather than in our own hands to, to wield responsibly, to think about difficult emotions as perhaps something that we deal with privately rather than publicly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Leadership requires all of those very complicated things be kind of in your toolkit and at your, the service of the vision that you're trying to create um, and the change you're trying to lead. So getting clear and comfortable with those things are, are important. And again, uh, for many women, we, we have to work at that because we've been socialized not to do those things. Yeah. And then the third thing I would say, and again, I think this is important for uh, every leader, but um, you know, particularly true or came to be true in my work with women is to think about how you lead with authenticity. For many of us, our models and our images of leaders were shaped by the images we see, which are often male images, often white male images, and encouraging each of us to become the leader that is inside of us to find our own unique leadership voice rather than to say, I have to look at that example outside and model myself on it. So these were all things that I, I won't say learned, that I learned and am learning. uh, And that many of the women, and in fact, many of the other leaders that I know in higher education in particular, wrestle with, focus on, and and my book addresses those kinds of issues. Thank you for that. And I I so appreciate um, what you just said. I, uh, uh, none of us are completed works. We're all still becoming um, and learning um, uh, is, uh, so I, I really appreciate your acknowledgement of that along with those other insights about the journey. I, I'm kind of, and it does make me want to jump to um, exploration around um, the unusual walk, I think, for people who have been pioneers, what mm-hmm. our, my colleague Shirley Pippen calls the pioneers, people who've been the first in their institutions. And I know you've been the first woman and the first Jewish person to serve at multiple institutions. Any words of advice for those? And, you know, the happy story here, I think, um, in some ways, Marjorie, is we have more pioneers. Um, yes. And we, we, we seem to me to be in a period of momentum around um, a more intentional creation of, uh, of a much richer, more diverse leadership cadre in higher education. But those who are the first bear special weight. Talk about that some. Well, Jay, you know, I think you are absolutely right that there are more opportunities now, many more opportunities. And some of that, you know, your work, the academic search and your work in particular has really helped to create. You do a great job of seeing leadership potential in a wide range of people and helping boards or hiring committees see how um, what they want in a leader can be found in a context that may be new to them or, or through experiences that may be less familiar to them. So I, I applaud you for that. Thank you. Um, you know, the pioneer question, and I love that phrase and I, I have taken that up from her as well. I, I love that phrase. Um, one of the things that I've really been noticing is that 
it's easier to sort of inaugurate and announce that pioneering president than it is to sometimes support that pioneering president in when the work gets difficult. And so I really encourage pioneers to talk with the hiring officer or the board leaders if they're a president at the outset, before you've even stepped on campus and before you've even started the role to say things such as, and, and I had these conversations very frankly um, with my boards, for example, to say, you know, I'm gonna be the first Jewish president at this Presbyterian college. We know there will be moments where that is difficult or I'm gonna be the first woman. We know there will be times that's gonna make, create some uncomfortable challenges, or there will be people who won't want to work with a woman in this leadership role. How will we deal with that? How will you help create a climate where I can be successful? How will you support me when I face those issues? Yeah. Because often what happens is, um, you know, uh, say the first black president or black vice president will come and say to the president or to the board, you know, I went into an encounter and there was really some racist subtext. And the white hiring agents will sort of start to parse whether or not this was really racist or whether it was something else. And that is not helpful in that moment, right? No. What's helpful is instead to say, how can I be supportive? How can I help you regain your, comf your, you know, your sense that this is a welcoming institution, that this is an institution that wants to support you in your work? And having some of those hard conversations ahead of time I think makes it easier. Um, this was a very much an open part of my cert process, particularly in my first presidency at Austin College, a, a Presbyterian institution, one with a very proud connection to the Presbyterian Church. Um, mm -hmm. And I was fortunate that the college chaplain was on that search committee. Mm -hmm. And he was really able to be a good integrator or connector for me and for the campus and for the alumni for whom that relationship was important to try to talk about how what I would bring to this role as a Jewish woman, it wasn't, he used to say that we're Presbyterian, but we have a Jewish president. He would say we're Presbyterian and so we're diverse. And so we have a Jewish president and we worked on that and so, and that was helpful yeah. to me and I think helpful to the institution. So yeah. being aware that you're gonna have to um, narrate some of that, I think is important. And then just one other point that I would make, which is that it's a real privilege. It, it's, it's can be very challenging and there are many hard moments. I certainly faced overt and covert anti-Semitism in my roles and sexism, but it's still a privilege to hold these positions. But it's even more of a privilege to recognize that to, to make your being that first pioneer part of a larger story about the institution. And so I used to look for every way, and I still do this in my uh, presidency here at CIC, to be able to say, here's how we do things in my tradition. Tell me how you do things in your tradition. Or here's what this experience has been like for me as the first woman in this role. Tell me what it has been like for you. And to try to use my own identity and my own firstness as a occasion for talking about the institution's aspirations, the institution's history of progression to inclusion and about the myriad ways that people bring their identities into our organizations. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> switching gears, in your mind, what makes a good leader? And by good, I don't mean grade B, I, I mean good. 
in this form that a philosopher would explore this, you know, virtuousness, effectiveness, ultimately success in moving an organization forward. I, I love that you use the word virtue because I do think about leadership in turn as, as a, you know, when I talk to leaders about the qualities you want to develop, I use a virtue ethics form. And Jay, you and I are not going to go off into deep philosophy land, but um, I do think that it is uh, developing certain kinds of character traits, really thinking about the uh, what philosophers are comfortable calling virtues. Uh, are that you want to cultivate does enhance your leadership. And, and it's it's important because if you're using more of a heuristic or a rule-based form of decision-making, you often don't have time to weigh the pros and the cons or run the Kantian imperative or start yeah. to make strong lists. You have to move from principle and character so often just because of the sheer volume of decisions you have to make and um, the the speed with which you're often called to, not to mention the fact that often the key decisions happen at two in the morning in a crisis situation. And yeah. you and, and your team needs to know what they can expect uh, from you. And so um, I, I do find that really, really important. You know, leadership is such a um, mixture of skills and traits and they can be put together in a lot of different ways. None of us are perfect. I do sometimes you know, look at some of the um, position descriptions, particularly for the college presidency, not the ones you write, but others. Oh. And they sometimes remind me of uh, that scene in the Mary Poppins movie where the kids are, they write a letter about what they want in their nanny. And it has all of these things. She should be thoughtful and nice and playful and smart. And she should smell good and she should bring sweets. And I sometimes think we have this sort of magical thinking that one leader is going to be able to embody everything we need in a change organization. So, but leadership is really not just about the things you do. It's about the ways you inspire others. I define academic leadership as inspiring others to make change in the service of a shared vision that improves, you know, that makes your institution better. And so helping to being able to craft a vision and being able to really inspire others to move in ways that make it real and to support them as they do that hard work of change takes a lot. It takes skills. You certainly need to be able to understand how institutions function. You need to be able to um, understand budgets and personnel matters and all sorts of you know, skills. But that's not in many ways the hard part. The hard part is, is maintaining your empathy on a bad day or um, holding firm to the values at, at the core of your mission when budgets are tight mm -hmm. or when somebody's mad or somebody's asking for an exception. Those are the hard things. And um, cultivating those things is to me the work of every day that we do. And then also what we're doing is we're helping to shape and identify and support uh, leaders. Wonderful. And, and I, you know, I, some of what you just commented on makes me think about Gallup um, and, mm -hmm. and, and they're writing around leaders that leaders aren't necessarily well balanced. They come in a variety of forms, a variety of flavors, but that, you know, um, the very most effective and best leaders will understand 
um, the complementary skills that they need to bring in the form of those who are a part of their teams. And so it kind of leads me to wanting to hear you maybe reflect a little bit about what it is that you look for and want from the teams that you build. I love that you asked that because that is one of the most reassuring things is that nobody leads alone. You lead as part of a leadership team and often multiple teams. You have a board of trustees that is helping you as a college president. You have a set of a cabinet or a set of vice presidents. You have faculty leaders, student leaders, uh, alumni leaders. So you're part of a variety of leadership teams that can complement your skills. I try to find teams and build teams that have complementary skills. You don't want a bunch of um, clones in the room. You'll get groupthink at you know at worst. You'll get uh, you'll miss out on really important things. So diversifying your leadership team is really important. And when we talk about diversifying the team, we mean that on all of these vectors: people with different life experiences, people with different backgrounds, but also people with different thinking styles. Uh, it's good to know that you've got somebody in the room who is the listener and the synthesizer and somebody else in the room who's the, listen, I've got the hard, cold facts here. And somebody else in the room that is the, here's a wild out of the box idea. And together you're gonna make better decisions and you're gonna uh, have a more robust vision for the campus if you incorporate multiple perspectives. So that diversity around the leadership team is essential. It's not as good to add it later. It's not as good to say, well, Everybody on the leadership team has roughly the same background. And then we go out and kind of ask for some input from some diverse groups. That's never as good as having that diversity baked in at the beginning. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. What are the biggest issues facing our leaders in higher ed today? Oh, Jay, this could be a podcast in itself, could it not? Uh, The work is very hard. And... Um, I, I would say there's a couple things. I mean, I think we're all aware of, you know, some of the challenges that have emerged around the pressures on our business model, the pressures on institutions in general, which overall there's decreasing respect for um, the pressures that have come about as a result of COVID and particularly student experiences um, before they get to college. And now that they're in college, the challenges our faculty and staff went through remaking our colleges multiple times to respond to the pandemic. So all of those things I think have been well discussed. I would highlight two things that I think are particularly challenging right now. Um, One is um, that everything has become political. And and I don't mean political in the sense of uh, how we grapple with power. I mean, everything has become political in that it is has to be is filtered and sieved through party politics. So there's almost nothing that one can say or read or point to or hold up that isn't going to start to be uh, heard in terms of a very narrow binary. Um, you know, the American yeah. party system is a very binary system. And that's really problematic because inherently what we do at colleges is we make more complicated things that might seem binary or simple on the surface. It's, it's what we do. And that complexity has a harder and harder time getting a toehold, not just in the popular press, but even sometimes on our own campuses when so much of American culture in particular, but global culture as well, is moving to try to um, 
push everything, every word, every sentence, every position into a narrow set of party politics. So that is really significant pressure on our institutions and it's showing up in all kinds of ways. Challenges and debates in the boardroom that become hard to move past. Um, needing to respond to government intrusion into curriculum or tenure status. Uh, the difficulties around finding common ground on free speech issues on campus. All of those things play out on our campuses as they should. I mean, you know, yeah. it, there'd be something wrong if these were in the air and not on our campuses. So exactly uh, I think, right. but I, I, I think it's, it, it's a very challenging moment to lead because you're trying to build a sort of common consensus around a vision. Yeah. And that's harder and harder to do when there are these pressures. The second thing I think is that communication technologies have made leadership challenging mm -hmm. because um, the the narrative doesn't have a center. And so any view about what your institution is, where it's headed, what it is, who it is, uh, there, there's not, not that I'm saying leaders should control it, but you, you sort of institutions had a narrative to which people could respond. Mm -hmm. It's harder and harder to even get a leadership narrative out into the conversation so that people have something to respond to. Yeah, whether yeah. that's to criticize it or to support it. And so I think that's hard. And it also means that, you know, we have, um, there are things that uh, it, it's very hard to sort of get ahead of the kinds of things that are unfolding on your very campus in real time, because by the time you've heard about them, they've all often already been narrated by other forces and voices that can have some positive effects, but it can also just make leadership ever more challenging. That, uh, so true. So true. And, 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 you know, sort of as a quick follow up on that, um, to be successful today, what are, you know, are, are there new or different skills um, or um, ways of handling oneself in the world than there were as we were coming up? It does feel like it's harder. Maybe every generation thinks that, but many of the people who've been at this for a long time say it, it just is harder. Mm -hmm. Some of the skills that are so essential is, uh, are, I think the ability to hold on to nuance, hold on to the sense that these things are more complicated. Yeah. Be able to enjoy the give and take of conversation and the kind of looseness of narrative and message to be comfortable with leading without controlling everything. Yeah. You know, if you, the more you try to control, the more it slips out of your hands. So I think that's important. Authenticity, transparency, mm -hmm. truly welcoming um, diverse voices to the table. All of those things I think are important in ways that perhaps they were less important in the past, or you could, you could do them on a Tuesday as opposed to 24 seven. And, and in this world of constant communication, being able and ready to communicate authentically all the time about any of the ish, real issues is essential. And that's exhausting. It, it's, an, it's, a, it's tiring. So stamina matters as well. Absolutely. Well, and I, you captured perfectly why is leadership harder um, there is no turning it on and off. I you know, remember working as a young staff member in the president's office at the University of Virginia, and the mail would come twice a day. 
Um, and, um, you know, we would process it in in the morning um, and stack it up and organize it and all of that. Now it's coming 24 seven um, right. uh, in unmediated ways to leaders. Um, and, yep. and, and then every single person in some ways has their own press credentials and can, uh, yeah. uh, through video and uh, recording, can release almost anything. So, right. And so, you know, thinking about how you respond, what you respond, and then what you try to state ahead of time, right? Who are you? Who is your institution? Yeah. What are we trying to accomplish? So, you know, not making sure that the majority of your communication is proactive and not reactive. Um, is important. Um, but all of those things are important. And, and, and um, uh, this is part of why, as we talked about earlier, it's so imperative that, that we support leaders as they do this work. And that we recognize that, again, for pioneers, this work has some added complexities to it that we will help navigate, help them navigate. Absolutely. Um, higher risks, uh, fewer degrees of freedom and um, equals uh, even greater need for support um, and commitment. So, yeah, let's move into what I kind of call our lightning round. Um, mm -hmm. I'll ask you shorter questions and you can answer whatever length you would like. But who most influenced you? I, I think my parents. I, that may feel like a little bit of a cliche or cop out answer, but they influenced me in different ways and in ways that... Um, you know, I knew to some extent as I was growing up, but become even more clear as you look back and as an adult. Uh, my father, who we lost uh, just about a year ago, my father of blessed memory, uh, was a psychoanalyst and taught me that you should love your work, taught me that ideas matter, taught me that uh, people have all sorts of relationships to power, to um, an institution, to things that are played out mm -hmm. in their relationship with the holder of the office of leader, but aren't really about the leader. That was very influential and helpful for me. Um, and also just gave me a way of thinking um, in a sort of depth way about um, what motivates people and the ways that people become themselves and how to support people in that journey. My mother uh, was, uh, when I was a child, uh, she was at home with us and then very early on wanted to go back to work. She was a, got a master's degree and taught special ed. And then she too eventually got us a PsyD and opened an analytic practice as well. Huh. And she was wonderful. My mother always says uh, that, she always used to say women can have it all, but perhaps not all at once. And she really was a model of thinking at each stage of your life what was going to be important to you and how were you going to live in that way? And uh, that was something that I really appreciated. I became a mother very early in my career before I even had started a career. You know, I was still in graduate school and her model that you could uh, be a loving mother, that you could make your family an important part of your life, but still have a significant career was really important for me and continues to shape how I think about it. So my parents were very influential. Thank you. Um, both of those um, powerful, powerful tributes. Um, you must have had interesting dinner conversations. Yes. Um, yes, you could say that. You know, uh, someday I'll tell you all about the kinds of conversations that psychoanalysts have over their dinner table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marjorie, is there a single book that has had great influence uh, on you? 
Um, probably the Torah is the most influential book. That's um, in many, you know, my my examples of leadership, my metaphors, my vision of something bigger than me or more yeah. than me, my sense of um, virtue, ethics, and of human failings. I mean, the the Torah, the story, five books of Moses have it all, right? There's stories about Indeed. families, there's stories about leaders, there's stories about trying to have a community together about uh, trying to have an ethical community. And so that continues to influence me, um, you know, through each site, we read the Torah in a cycle every year. And I am always learn something new every time uh, we read each, each week. Um, in terms of philosophy, I would say um, uh, Wittgenstein was an influential author hmm. and yeah. um, Hannah Arendt is, is influential as well. Fabulous, fabulous, thank you. You have a fondest memory of your undergraduate experience? Absolutely, meeting my husband and falling in love with him in a philosophy class. So uh, as I said, you fall in love with the discipline and I had the joy of falling in love with uh, the discipline and with my husband at the same time. He is also a philosopher and um, he, he approached philosophy in a very different way than I did. My way was much more... Um, intellectual and structural and symbolic. I was studying formal logic and philosophy of language. And Larry was studying phenomenology and the wow. living body and experience. And um, he uh, is a wonderful individual and a wonderful thinker. And so the memories of those early conversations about ideas always stick with me. And I'm fortunate that I get to go home at night and have those same kinds of conversations with the same man all these years later. Indeed. And if you get uh, to a, the end of a philosophical trail, he can engage in some magic. For those who don't that, that's know, right. uh, Larry is a, a, is, a, is a very accomplished magician. So He uh, is a yeah, sleight of hand magician. He um, has retired from the classroom and is happy to let me lead these organizations while he, uh, he has made a second career uh, performing. I love it. By the way, um, the number of philosophy majors at Nebraska Wesleyan was very small. Mm. What was it like at the U of I? I mean, how many well, majors were there? It's interesting. So, you know, at U of I and the graduate, you know, it's a major research institution. So it had, I, I can't quite remember the numbers, but it seemed like a big department. There were very few women in it. I think I had one female professor all throughout undergraduate and graduate school in the philosophy department, just wow. one. Wow. And so, um, you know, it really was not, uh, there just weren't a lot of role models. There weren't a lot of examples. And uh, that was challenging. Um, but it was also a very supportive environment. I had professors there who were very supportive of my own intellectual development. And when I, when I met Larry, he was in the graduate program. I was a senior in college and, uh, you know, stayed at at U of I so that we could be together. And my professors were really supportive of that. And, and um, we were, we were very fortunate. Yes, you were indeed, indeed. Well, is there a favorite campus tradition at a place you've attended or served that you would raise up? I would say that at all three of the institutions I have served, I have a particular fondness for opening convocation. Mm -hmm. There's something about that moment of gathering, um, at each of my institutions, there was usually an opportunity to honor a professor who had, you know, yeah. made a particular impact in the classroom, usually some words from the president, which when I was president, I, you know, had the honor of offering. 
Um, the new class is there usually for the first um, group and the faculty are coming together and many of the upper class students who work with the first year students are there and sometimes parents or others. And there's just something about that freshness, that revitalization, that sense that we are always starting again in higher education. We're always starting and the work is never over that I always find particularly uplifting. I, I love that. I mean, I, one, of the, one of the great rewards of my journey has been that higher ed is a world in which you have beginnings and endings. And what you said about opening convocation, it rings so powerfully um, uh, yes. for me as well, because it is the time of year where everybody's got an A in every class and yes. every sports team is undefeated um, and yes. you're filled with what's possible. Um, yes, uh, I love that. It's true. And, you know, obviously, you know, commencement, right, which is the other side of that. Yeah. is always very beautiful and meaningful, but it's also been filled with a tinge of sadness uh, because you're saying goodbye to these uh, yeah, you know, students, yeah. seeing them on their next path. Um, and then you sort of come to opening convocation and there's that sense of revitalization again. Yeah, ab absolutely true. Hey, if you hadn't worked in higher ed, what would you have done? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, this is my job at CIC is the very first... Uh, you know, adult job I have ever had that where I'm not living and working on campus. I've lived on college campuses since I was 18 years old and went to college. And for the last yeah. 20 years, I've lived in a campus home, you know, yeah. as president and provost. So um, I, there isn't a lot of me that is sort of outside of higher ed. Um, yeah. When I think about what I would do, I, I don't know. I, I have many, many interests um, and I, I recognize, I didn't know this when I was 18, but certainly through my leadership roles, I've become a good businesswoman. I, you know, have skills to lead organizations. I, um, am good at, uh, mentoring and supporting others. So I, I think there certainly would be things that I could have found and could continue to find outside of higher ed, but there's something about this environment that really suits me very well. I understand. I really do. Well, Marjorie, I'm really grateful for your sharing this time. And one of our uh, wrap-up traditions here is um, that we'd like to close by asking um, you to share with our listeners the distinctive qualities, um, if you will, the organizational DNA of CIC. Um, and, um, you know, I'd love for you to reflect and um, uh, have the elevator speech with audiences that may or may not know about independent colleges, why these institutions matter so much to the future of our country. Sure. And it's a, it's a really important time to emphasize this, I think. So Council of Independent Colleges, we are a membership organization of uh, more than 665 uh independent institutions. Those institutions are independently governed. They have a commitment to the liberal arts uh, expressed through their curriculum in some way or another. Um, and they all care deeply about undergraduate education. They're still a very varied group. More than 70% of them have graduate programs, for example, more than, um, you know, our, our membership is a wide uh, ranging group. We have institutions that have more than 10,000 students. We have institutions that have fewer than 500. So it's yeah. a it's a very diverse group. 
I think a couple things. One is just the, the volume of students we serve. So CIC uh, institutions educate more than 2 million students a year. That is, even though we're small and do that, you know, on often one by one and student by student in very relationship driven education, collectively, that's a significant impact. And we know that those students go on to great success professionally and in uh, leadership roles across the country and the world. So we're, we're, serving as a really important uh, point for that. We're also an important access point. CIC institutions enroll um, Pell Grant students, enroll first-generation students in uh, numbers that are relatively similar to public institutions as a whole, and we graduate them in a greater proportion because um, our students are more likely to graduate and to graduate in four years. And the other thing I'll say that I think is really important is that independence is really uh, important. Um, and we're seeing that in real time as we watch government intrusion state by state by state into curriculum, mm -hmm. into tenure decisions, into the kinds of organizations students are able to form, the kinds of topics faculty members can teach about, what majors students can have. Um, that independence is uh, going to be increasingly important. And, and I talked to our presidents about our need to uh, stay firm, to speak up in favor of campus freedom of expression and academic freedom, because we will be the torchbearers for that in what is a, a very challenging and in some ways very dark and frightening era, I think, yeah. of the relationship between uh, government and education. Uh, thank you for that. And it's it's a it, it is a reminder that um, the academy is its own ecosystem and this um in this period of time there is a way in which our leaders can support their public colleagues in, in really powerful ways. And thank you for, for sharing that. Um, Absolutely. You know, um, I can't say thank you enough, Marjorie, for joining us here today on Leaders on Leadership. It's been a special pleasure to have this chance to hear you reflect, to share insights and wisdom. And I, I just want to say thank you so very, very much. Jay, it is truly a pleasure. And thank you for the work you do in identifying and supporting leaders for our sector and in, uh, you know, having this podcast and, and giving um, a forum for these kinds of important conversations. It's been a pleasure. Well, pleasure is mine. And to our listeners, we welcome your suggestions and thoughts for leaders we might feature in upcoming segments. You can send those to leadershippodcast at academicsearch.org, O-R-G. You can find our podcast on the Academic Search website or wherever you find your podcasts. Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition and through leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. What a joy and an honor it's been to have Dr. Marjorie Haas with us today. Thank you once again, Marjorie, for joining us.